the world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, I'm your host Gordon Raquel, and this episode we have Cindy Clarkson. This is part two of my interview with Cindy Clarkson. In this episode we're actually going to discuss uh, Every Night, Every Night, as well as her work in editing, and also we get really into the sounds um, of the various films. She's she's sort of like an overall uh, artist, I guess you could say. So take a listen, let us know if you have any questions, you can always get us on Twitter, it's at AOTG Network. You can get us on Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network. And we're going to be uh, doing some pub nights in Toronto, uh, Canada, July 21st at the Pacific Junction Hotel, which is actually a bar, but they call it a hotel. But uh, check it out. Make sure to go there, grab some beers with us. Uh, if you're a CCE member, you get your first pint free. And if you're uh, there early, you get tickets for raffles uh, for everything from scratch to resolve. So uh, you can't go wrong, really, with that night. With that said, let's get into my interview with Cindy, and uh, we'll get back to you after this. Now, I, I, I guess what I'd like to do is jump to every night, every night. Yeah. Um, can you give me a sense of... It, it, well, first, I guess, was this your first film? Because when I was going through your... Um, IMDb and what have you was listed as the, your first, but you you had assisted and worked in in England prior to this. Uh, but yeah. was it for your, your first full cut? Um, every night, every night was my first feature film that I was able to edit, and that was in '92. Um, I had at this stage moved to Melbourne, um, and I had declared to the world that I was no longer an assistant, which everybody went, that's great, that's fantastic, and all my work disappeared <laughs> <laughs> promptly, which, of course, I shouldn't have been surprised at in any way, shape or form. At that stage, I was still undecided whether I wanted to be a picture editor or a sound editor, so I was in both camps um, as an assistant and as an editor um, and um, realising that I wasn't getting any work and I needed to build a showreel I got in contact with students at VCA, the Victorian College of Arts, which had a film and television unit um, which had been running since the 70s and they were cutting on film at that stage. Um, this is early 90s and I just started contacting filmmakers and saying, hey, listen, I really need to get involved and do some stuff. Um, at that stage I didn't manage to get any work from them but it, it, I'd started that process and somehow... I got in contact with Alan, Al, the director, um, Al Silamidis. I've just murdered his name. Sorry, Al. Alkinos Silamidis. There we go. He's a Greek boy, Greek Australian. Um, and originally I was supposed to be involved in the sound edit. Now, Al had been cutting it himself on a four plate, so he's dealing with one vision and one track of sound. It's 16 mil, shot in black and white. Two to one, two to one shooting ratio, and it's based off a 
amazing stage play of the same name, which deals with um, uh, Division uh, Pentridge, which is a high-end um, prison and the prisoners that are in isolation. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember the block that it was called. I, I think say it was H- Ward H. Yeah, H Division. Thank H you. H Division, yeah. Yeah. Um, and them basically going on strike to get better rights for themselves. So it's a pretty punishing film. It's um, it's full of language. It's, it's not too violent in the sense of physical violence, although that is present. It's more about the psychological violence that these people endured. Um, anyway, so Al screens a uh, rough cut to the sound crew, which is myself and another gentleman called Phil Winters, and um, I couldn't help myself. I, I, I saw the cut and I, I was I was excited to be involved as a sound editor completely because I could see the opportunity there. Um, but I, I went up to Al later and just said, hey, listen, there's a, a couple of things I think you might want to consider for the picture. I don't recall what they actually were, unfortunately, but I suggested them to him. And um, two days later he rang me up and said, hey, listen, do you want to help me finish cutting the film? And, of course, I went, oh, yes, you need to ask. So, um, again, just out of fortune and, and great generosity by the filmmaker, um, I had the opportunity. We spent two months reworking that material um, and the last – 30 minutes of the film is a riot, a build of a riot that ends up in them achieving, the prisoners achieving what they needed to, um, which is uh, a change in the way they were treated. So we managed to get in a six plate, oh my goodness, um, and get that extra soundtrack so we could overlay sounds because all the prisoners are shouting to each other from their cells, so we needed to be able to mash it all together. Um and that, w- that was amazing. Um, and then we spent five months um, sound editing and in that five months there was a six-week uh, ed- mix as well um, of which we really only allocated six days. So it was massive and it was fantastic. I mean the riot scene had 60 tracks worth of foley, sound effects, um, extra ADR, um, whatever else we could throw at it. Um, to, to mix down and it all ended up being on a mono track as well because Alan at, the st- at that stage couldn't afford this, the Dolby license for stereo. So, um, yeah, no, it was an extraordinary experience and that was my first film. It was, it was amazing. I'm, I'm, I remain proud of it. Um, of course, you're proud of the work that you, you do, but it, Al is an incredible filmmaker. He's very socially conscious. I don't, as I teased him at the time, I don't think he's going to make a romantic comedy anytime soon. <laughs> and he, he hasn't yet, although he may prove me wrong at some stage. It might be a challenge you have to lay down. Actually, that's the truth. Okay. All right. I'll do it. <laughs> even See if what? it's a short, even if it's like a short romantic comedy, he's got to try it. You know, you're on. All right. Well, I'll. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what he'll come up with. I mean, yeah, technology's cheap now. You could shoot it quickly on a DSLR. Oh, absolutely. If that, probably yeah. off his phone. Knowing yeah. Al, off his phone. Yeah, it'll be a gritty uh, romantic comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Around Melbourne, absolutely. Now, the sound played such a, a key role in this, and I noticed it like, right off the bat. There was um, such an interesting sound design. So how did you 
did you like how involved were you uh with the sound design because you said you that was your depart the department yeah. you were working in but you also did the editing so what was your role in that and and i guess uh how did you approach developing the sound for this project well um gosh i've got to dig back into this memory of mine there was it ended up there were three of us working on the sound design and edit as such phil winters who was working with me and then left about two months into the sound edit mm-hmm. and then we were joined by Stephen and I've just forgotten Stephen's last name. No, that hasn't come back to me and he stuck with us until we got into the mix. So between the three of us, we had certain ideas about this prison. Um, when they were sh- when did they shoot? No. Was I involved when they were shooting? Sorry, I'm just trying to remember because yeah, no, I bro. do not. I, I do know I actually went down to the location, <clears throat> the jail that they shot, which was a disused jail outside of Geelong, which is about a, a an hour's drive from Melbourne. Um, and I know we recorded some sounds there. Pretty Actually, I do remember being at the shoot. How did that happen? Because he's already rough cut. That can't be right. I think I blurred memories. No, I can't have been at the shoot. Anyway, we did go down there just to sort of, feel the space and hear it. And we also went to another jail which was a bit larger, and I remember doing this with Stephen, where we um, went to the Castlemaine Jail, which was similar in design, um, and recorded a whole lot of atmospheres and extra sounds. So Al was obviously very clear about what kind of sounds we would hear. I remember him wanting a lawnmower for a particular time where Dale's outside breaking rocks. Um and so he had ideas for the design as well. And we also had access to Ray Mooney, who was the writer of the play, who also actually happened to be in prison at the time these events occurred. Um, so he could give us an idea of what sounds we would hear and what we wouldn't um, because Pentridge is in Melbourne suburbia, but this is 1970s. This isn't the 1990s. So the, the sounds were a bit different. Um, and it was really about, well, let's make it from the prisoner's point of view. So really the only true life you ever really got to hear in that space was the birds that you never saw, um, but you could hear them. And when you were outside, we had the sound of the lawnmower at some point, and occasionally you would hear the other prisoners' activities. So further around Pentridge there would have been men who were able to exercise or play footy or um, I don't know if they were given cricket bats, probably not cricket. Um, so it was really about encapsulating it and really working out what we wanted to hear and accentuating the guards, so their footsteps, all this sort of stuff. We actually went out and recorded most of it. Um, I don't believe we used a CD library, and if we did, it wouldn't have been much. We wanted the natural sounds of Australia and we wanted um, that feeling of being enclosed um, in the cells and how sound is dampened. We really wanted people to feel it. And to be honest, to get it on a mono track and even get it that way was an extraordinary achievement by the sound mixer, Pete Frost, who was incredibly generous to the film. He was only paid for six days and we were there for six weeks. And at no point did he tell us to get nicked. He he stuck with it because he believed the film was worth doing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. 
So I guess the design was partly osmosis, obviously informed by what the director wanted, but also by us going, well, you know, what would you hear? What could we hear? Do we want to try this? Do we want to try that? Um, because we really could only listen to two tracks at a time. Um, so we were, it was a lot of just trying to remember the kind of sounds that we had. Um, and we were making track laying sheets. So again, it was, it's pre-computer. So we've, we've hand drawn and written on sheets with tracks, tracks just going forever in some cases, um, pages just stuck together of, you know, footage countdown and at this point there's a, a footfall or at this point there's um, uh, just a little bit of a magpie coral that you kind of hear, magpie being an Australian bird, um, you know, and then for the whole thing you've just got this shaded out area which is um, crickets because it's really hot. So it was really by memory and, and just a bit of discussion and and everybody looking at the tracks and just going, yeah, okay, well, this is kind of what we want. And it was a lot of talking. We were working together in the same room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm just, as you were saying that, I was just looking at one of my, my notes on the sound and it says hyper sound design, comma, <laughs> make sure to ask uh, how involved <laughs> well, she was. So it was a really uh, impressive sound design. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. I mean, it, it was amazing to work on. I mean, the, the language in this film is quite harsh. I mean, it's mother, motherfucker every second word. So by the end of it, because I, I did a lot of dialogue editing as well, um, by the end of it I had a shaved head. I'd, I'd gone to a number one haircut, <laughs> much to um, Alan's amusement. He loved it. Um, and it was it, you literally became part of it, or at least I did. I mean, I didn't behave like that with my friends and family, although my language certainly devolved um, during the process. Wow. And I know staying in that sort of sound, uh, realm, your current yeah. project is, uh, being done in Adobe or sorry, Adobe, uh, Atmos. Yeah. And I've heard so much about it, but I don't know much about it. And I was wondering if you could tell me about it, what it is and, and sure. how it works. Okay. Um, well, it's an extraordinary thing. Okay. Uh, we had the extreme fortune canopy was offered the opportunity to spend three days in a Dolby Atmos mix suite um, at Sound Firm in Melbourne. Roger Savage very kindly offered it to us and the filmmakers took it. Um, Aaron Wilson, the director, is incredibly focused on sound. His short films um, of which I haven't been involved, but all his short films have an amazing soundscape that go with it. Um, and Canopy is no different. This is his first feature film. Um, and he was very clear from the beginning before we even started putting a frame together that it was going to have a really complex, lush um, soundscape. Now, the basis of the story is an Australian pilot is shot down as the Japanese invade Singapore, the island, in World War II, he crash lands. Obviously, he manages to survive. Otherwise, it's a very short film. <laughs> um, and he then has to try and get back um, to Singapore and get through Japanese enemy lines. So it goes from day into night into day, um, and it's the process of him going through this jungle. Now, Aaron lived in Singapore 
um, for I think three years, it may be two, but three. So he had a really good idea of the sound of the jungle as well. There is a small patch of original jungle still in Singapore. They haven't completely bowled it over, although that's that's been encroached again where we filmed some of the areas um, are designated for construction. Um, so he had a really lush idea. And because, of course, it's the invasion, there's just a constant, constant sound of war. So whether that be planes flying overhead, bombs going off, mortars, machine guns, pistols, rifles of different descriptions, um, the occasional encounter with the Japanese themselves, uh, the wildlife and trees. The trees are a really big thing in this film. Um, it's a bit of a metaphor. I, I don't want to ruin the film too much because most people won't have seen it, but it, it's an incredibly complex um uh, sound track lay. Now, I personally didn't have much involvement with the track lay itself. The sound design and track lay was done by two gentlemen at um, Production Alley, uh, which was done off and on over seven months. So it was a lot of time of them working it through Rodney Lowe and mainly Nick. Um, I want to say Nick Buchanan, but I think that's his wrong surname. Okay. Um. Uh, I should find a poster. Hang on while I do that. Sure. Um, so Aaron's working with young Nick and they're just quietly going through it and it was great because um, Aaron and Katrina, the producer, Katrina Fleming, would occasionally just ring me up and go, hey, listen, do you want to come and have a listen to where we're at? And, of course, I'd always be excited because it's like, well, yeah, I want to see where you're taking this film because, as we all know, as editors, um, your picture edit is a great thing. It's it's the building blocks. Um, but to me, it's only 40% of a film. You've then got 60% of the film to come, which is your sound design. And although as an editor and as while you're cutting, you're actually laying stuff up and putting suggestions in and placing music in, which in this case we didn't have any music, um, or we made the choice not to, except for a couple of places, which is a memory scape. Um, it, it was always, it's a great thing to be able to um, see how a film suddenly burgeons into something else um, when you start designing. And of course, because this was such a complex one, it was always exciting. So I'm, I was involved in that sense of listening to what these guys have put together and um making suggestions and it was always with the circumstance of take it or leave it, but this is how I feel. Um, so that was great. So these guys did the 5.1 Dolby Stereo Mix, which was then premiered at Toronto and um, last year, which was an amazing premiere to have. And it's since travelled a few international um, festivals and continued to get great press for the most part. So this is where um, Roger's invitation to do a Dolby Atmos came from because the sound design is something that is consistently mentioned as it should be. Um, so just let me find Nick's name because I so don't want to get it wrong and he really deserves um, – oh, no, I was right. So Nick Buchanan, it is totally Nick's work with Rodney um, overseeing it. There we go. Great. I didn't get that wrong. Um, okay. So – Dolby Atmos. Back to the actual original question. I haven't given you the most waffled explanation as to how we got there. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so the the immediate difference that you see when you come into a Dolby uh, Dolby Atmos um, area is that you've got speakers above you. Now that enables you to completely encapsulate the audience with an oral experience. So not only can you pan obviously left to right, up the sides and round to the back, you can now pan above them, over them and around them that way as well, as well as obviously your your central speakers behind the screens. So suddenly you have a capacity and Dolby Atmos has the capacity to mix to 64 speakers. Now, most cinemas only have about 47 or something like that. Um, and what Dolby Atmos does is when it um, is sent off in its uh, little package that you get with your DCP and you plug it in, however you do that, because I'm not that technically orientated, Dolby Atmos is smart enough to figure out how many speakers a cinema has and then allocates where those sounds go. So it can be used in a cinema as little with as little um, amount of speakers as 24, although obviously your experience of it becomes quite diminished, and up to 64 speakers. So clearly, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary piece of software um, intelligence going on there. So what happened was... Um, Duron Kippen, who was the mixer from the 5.1 because we went to Music and Effects, another company, to actually mix the sound design that Nick and Rodney worked on. They didn't have the capacity to do the 5.1. Um, uh, Aaron and Duron spent time pulling out atmospheres, effects, um, dialogue, although there is so little dialogue in this film I don't know that they actually did pull it out for the Atmos tracks, but they split some of the tracks across so that um, Chris Goods, the mixer um, at Soundfirm, was then able to allocate where um, those sounds would sit. So whether they were above us, around us, um, and how you know he would add his reverb and his magic to EQs to stuff like that. So. Um, it was an extraordinary experience because what it, it did was it opened up the film so that the jungle not only is now around you but above you, so you are actually in the jungle. You're not surrounded by it, you're in it, if that makes any sense. Um, and it, it is an extraordinary experience. We, we found also, and this is Aaron commented on this because he, he was obviously aware of what they'd what they physically pulled out to place in these these extra speakers that, as did Duran actually, um, that what happens is in doing that and opening it out again, the whole experience with what was left of the, the 5.1 stereo mix, which is not a shabby mix, um, we had to adjust and change again because being able to hear it above us now meant that some of the sounds felt a little bit wrong where their placement was in speakers or their timing or their shifting or their panning was wrong. Um, so it was an interesting experience. Um, and if if we'd had the the money and the time, I'm sure Nick and Rodney would have loved to have actually track laid more stuff, but we just didn't have the opportunity. 
Um, and it's not a complaint in any way, shape or form. The experience of actually being able to go to that mix and listen to what it changed and shifted as a, as a cinematic experience is amazing. Um, so I don't know if that entirely answers your question, but if if you ever have the opportunity to see gravity in Amos, because apparently that has been done in it, I would go and see that because that would be just take your heart tablets with you. Yeah. Really. yeah. It would be extraordinary, I think. Okay. Yeah. No, it'd yeah. be amazing. By the sounds mm. of it. So I, I don't know if I have, I might've seen it in Atmos. I don't know. Cause I saw it in IMAX, Dolby surround, all that stuff, but I don't know if it was Atmos. No, I, 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 uh, I think if it was, they would have trumpeted it from the, the, height of the screen to the bottom of the screen yeah, um, yeah. and you would have actually seen the speakers because they would have been above you uh then definitely not have, yeah you would have physically seen something different about the cinema if you've been there before so there's not too many atmos cinemas in the world as i understand it yet but this is the next evolution if you like of the cinematic experience we've done the 3d thing that's now become not per se, but it's they've finally worked out how to use it properly without it being a gimmick. So now the next thing to bring on board is this now encapsulating sound experience, which you can't get at home with your five point one setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I wonder if they're going to ever package it then for home, because <laughs> you know there's uh, home theater nets who are like, oh, I need that now. Yeah. Um, well, it's defined as nine point one. Um, so it will be a matter of time. But I think, first of all, uh, cinemas need to um, adjust to it, I guess. They've, they've managed to get through the digital process of becoming digital projectors rather than film, and that's taken time. So I have a feeling it's probably over the next 18 months to two years that we'll see the high-end cinemas starting to change over because, of course, there's expense involved. You've suddenly got to rig up your extra speakers and do all the checks and everything else that have to go with it. But it is an extraordinary experience. And, um, you know, if you can ever experience a film with it, it would be amazing. Okay. And now I want to um, talk briefly about uh, Van Diemen's Land. Yeah, that you, cr- you pronounced it correctly. All right, Van perfect. Yeah, I, yeah. Was, I was really nervous <laughs> about <laughs> pronouncing it. Um can you give can you give me a sense of how this film came about and how you got involved uh, with it? Yeah, sure. Okay, so the, the background is Jonathan Afterhide is um, an actor turned director. He went through the VCA film school, um, a three year course, and his final year was making a twenty minute short film. And Jonathan was a smart cookie. Um, he already has established himself as an actor before he started the film school. So he's got great connections with the acting community and film community. Um, And in that process and in that journey, he met a gentleman by the name of Oscar Redding. Oscar has done a a one-man play, sorry, a one-man play on um, Alexander Pierce, who is the main character out of Van Diemen's Land. Um. And Jonathan recognises that this is going to make a great film. Um, It's folklore in Tasmania. Van Diemen's Land is um, Tasmania, so it's the original Dutch um, naming of the the small island off 
off Australia, which is part of the Australian um, Confederation, if you want to call it that. Um, And he makes this 20-minute short film as a calling card for the feature. And he has a great cast who give him everything. Um, And it manages to garner some awards locally and get him a little bit of money. He wins the cash prize at um, the Melbourne International Film Festival, which gives him some money. Um, And they go on with the idea, right, well, now we're going to make the feature. So they get all their friends together and they are friends, all these boys that end up in the film. Um, Maggie Miles is producing who Maggie and Jonathan met while going through VCA. Maggie's a producer, um, student now producer. Um, And two weeks out of the actual filming, uh, a six-week shoot on location, they realise they actually need an editor on board. Um, And due to uh, a couple of people, including director John Hewitt and another director who I'd just finished working with on a short film, um, Juliet Porter, who had gone through VCA, my name had come up. So they rang me. So I was one of the people they spoke to. Um, And for whatever reason, I said the right things and I did engage with the film um, and the script and just kind of said, well, look, I'm, I'm available. I'd love to be involved. Um, if you guys go ahead with it, that would be fantastic. And fortunately, they did say yes. Uh, Ellery Ryan, who's an extremely experienced DOP, was set to shoot it. He also short, uh, shot a short film um, and it was going to be shot on red. So at this stage, i trying to remember what year it is. Uh, it might be 2008, 2009. The red cameras have been out, but they're still relatively new in Australia. So we're, um, we're working with um, not necessarily at the pointy end of the technology, but certainly it's fresh in Australian industry. Um, Inspiration Studios and Pete Wells are involved and they have uh, they've given us the edit suite and, and the red cameras for very little so it, this film was made on the smell of an oily rag and a lot of great intention and artistic ability, um, and that's my again my luck. I really engage with the script. Jonathan's a really welcoming human being, um, and it, it was just a joy to cut. I can't tell you. I I didn't. I wasn't on on location. They shot five weeks in the Otways, which is the southern end of. Victoria, and then went to Tasmania for a week and shot extra bits in there where it also snowed, which was fantastic. It just gave us a difference. But receiving the rushes every second day, um, you would just get these extraordinary landscapes and it it was just gobsmacking. I mean, my response to the footage was a joy with what the guys were doing on screen and and how it was being shot, but also just the landscape. The landscape was very clearly, very quickly, a major, major character, Um, and it was great to work with it. And because I kept thinking of big screen and not because it was set in the 1820s, um, I was was hesitant to use close-ups. There were close-ups in there and they are used in the film, but I just wanted to celebrate the environment they're in because it was incredibly harsh. Um, the story is basically 
eight convicts manage to escape. The escape plan goes awry. They are forced um, to go inland, which is not their intention, and unbeknownst to them, they go into an area which even the Australian Aboriginals don't go into because there's no animals, there's no food. So very quickly, these eight men turn to cannibalism, of which we don't really see a lot of it. It's not about the eating of men, um, although that's, that's the basis of the story and the truth of it. Um, it's about how these men survive in this unforgiving landscape, as beautiful as it is, but also the unforgiving nature of hunger. Um, so it's more of a psychological violence and I would call it a thriller, but it's not, you know, chasing, running, hiding thriller. Well, it's interesting because I, I was one of the questions that I had earlier that when we were talking about uh, the history of uh, Australian films. Yeah. And, um, one of the defining factors for Canada and Canadian films is uh, the landscape and how yeah. that plays a role. And I've noticed that there's sort of this harshness to a lot of the, the projects that I was watching of yours or this sort of, in, in, in particular with this one, um, how uh, the land sort of um, helps define the country. Um and and with that, when I'm watching the way you've cut it, it's these beautiful wide shots, and you can see these massive amounts of just forest going for you know forever. Um, and then just sort of there's a few moments where you you sit on the on the shots and let them play out. Um, was was this sort of the intention or the approach to the cut? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it some of it just happened naturally. I mean, it's it's the natural attrition from eight men down to the final two. Um, so when you've got eight people to cut around, and, of course, at first they're all really excited and energetic and talking to each other and playing off each other and not everybody gets on. Um, and it, really the first killing doesn't happen until about sort of, I think it's 40 minutes into the film, so about halfway. Um, so there's an energy to that because, of course, you want to make sure that you you allow the audience the opportunity to engage with the characters and although they're obviously convicts and possibly the most terrible people in the world, um, you've got to care about them or have some understanding of who these people are and them as individuals before we start killing them off. So once you start killing them off, then you can not edit as much because you don't need to, you don't have to. And I, I, the thing that I enjoy doing, and it's it, not to aggravate the audience, is there are times where I'm not just going to cut because I can. If the actor is holding their performance and giving you that extra little moment where you can see something going on in their face, and it, it may be that they're just staring, they're not necessarily blinking, they're not necessarily moving their body, but they're incredibly still, but there's a tension to it then I will hold it because they are giving you something and it's actually giving a message to the audience. Um, and a way of creating tension for an audience is not by editing, by not, not showing things. So sustaining a cut can do that. But once you're in a wide shot, of course, what you're doing is belittling the people. They are becoming smaller in the scape, even though they might be close in frame. There is still this mass of trees or bush or open plain or water or whatever it is 
that is is encapsulating them, enclosing them, and crushing them. Um, and it 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 reminds for me it was a reminder of how fragile these people are. Um, when I approached this film for editing, and it's, it probably sounds like a real pompous thing to feel, but this is how I perceived it. These men were already ghosts within the landscape they moved. To me, they were already dead. They were dead men walking because the film opens up with this extraordinary landscape of trees going past um, with Jethro's amazing soundtrack going on and um, music. Um, and then we have Alec, Alexander Pierce, although we don't understand who it is yet, speaking in Gaelic the Irish Irish language. Um, so we are already in the future when we start. So for me it was just a matter of letting it play out. And fortunately for, you know, Jonathan could see what I was doing and there were times where he said, hey, no, we don't need to cut here, we can hold it longer. So the two of us were working together to maximise opportunities and celebration of that landscape as harsh as it was and as as um, ungiving as it was to these people as well mm-hmm. now because you you talk about the the actor's delivery and sort of that that moment in their in their mm. eyes what is it you look for in the rushes when you're assessing the actor's performance um okay when i'm i'm first looking at rushes and it's something that i've discovered that I have to do, um, or at least it seems to be in the projects that I work on, I'm not only looking at performance, I'm also looking at the technical because unlike what used to happen when you got film, you go to a telecine session and there'd be um, a light one applied to it with a telecine operator or uh, greater as well there. So they would be looking for the technical and you would just look at performance. But now I'm looking at both. Um, and reporting on both, so I've become that individual. But obviously performance is the main thing because I know the director hasn't seen the footage and it's not about um, me as the editor telling the director this is crap. That's not what it's about. This is about me praising everybody when they've got it amazingly right, which they did, and also just every so often pointing out, hey, listen, I think there's a weakness here for these reasons for the overarching story. Um, you may want to consider it or look at the rushes. Um, so what you're doing is you're, you're looking out for the crew and the director, but in the same token, step back again to your question, um, what is it about the actors? There will be something when you're watching it um, because you, you're listening to the raw sound, the location sound as well. So you might be hearing their breathing because they've got radio mics on. Um, you might be looking at the way that they're walking. Um, some actors give you this, almost the same performance every single time and other actors will actually just shift something. They've, they've been given the opportunity of doing another take and they've gone, right, well, I'm in this headspace for this particular moment. I'm actually going to do something slightly different. And if it's a close-up, obviously it's not going to be much more than maybe a a slight head turn or it's actually a very sudden action that they didn't do before or it's the way they breathe in before they speak. And it it will be a moment which it rings true or you're looking at it going, oh, that actually could be an accentuation of of an idea because – Obviously, 
you know the script and you know what's going to happen to these characters and when. So what you're looking for is either moments of innocence, moments of awareness, moments of realisation that you can manipulate and use in the edit to forewarn the audience, indicate to the audience something new or allowing the audience to see something different about this character that maybe throughout half the film they haven't really emoted, they haven't really done much more than what is physically required of them within the landscape and then suddenly they sit down in front of a river and they've taken their shoe off and they're washing their feet and all of a sudden they've gone into a different space and it says something about that character at that point and it may be that they've gone into a different space because they're incredibly hungry or it may be that they've gone into a space because they've actually managed to stop and their character has looked around and actually acknowledged the beauty that they're in or the ugliness of what's in they're in because, of course, it would be quite a foreign landscape to these European people. Um, and it just reveals and gives the audience something extra for that character. I'm always looking for just layers and it, it – it's not necessarily in delivery because, of course, you've got to say lines and you've got to give particular emphasis. And you can manipulate that in an edit and you can manipulate it in sound post by ADRing it again um, and getting the actors to give a slightly different read. But, you know, anything that just adds to it um, and builds on the previous material is a great thing. And originally you see things in an assembly that once you get down to your first fine cut, I always try and go back to the rushes and just skim through material and have a look to see if I've missed anything because by honing it down and distilling it into what it's going to be, so it's running at about maybe 110 minutes, you're starting to see the final form. And, of course, things get dropped along the way as they do or rearranged and you you, th- you just have this nagging feeling, you know, I'm sure there's a better look for this particular point and hopefully you have the luxury and the time to be able to go through the rushes and seek seek it out and find it. Now, <clears throat> sorry. Um, yes, I have one last question and I asked this of all the editors that I interview and I was, I was wondering if you could tell me uh, what your favourite guilty pleasure film was. Guilty pleasure. Yeah. All right. Well, I have top ten films, but I also have top ten popcorn films. Yeah. Um, and until I saw Gravity recently, which is now my number one popcorn film, I thought that was extraordinary um, in so many levels. Um, it had been Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, what, what was it about that film? Um, it's the celebration and the joy of it. It's cheeky. It's fun. It's smart filmmaking. I mean, if you look at that great opening where um, Jack sails into the harbour on that leaky boat and ends up putting his foot on the jetty as the mast is going underwater with perfect aplomb and walking down the jetty, um, it's just the way it's put together. It's, it's a very you see this, you see that, you see this, and it's very much point A, point B, point C, but it's the choices they made and how they did it. Obviously, there's the way Johnny Depp 
portrays Jack. He could have done it as a very swashbuckling Errol Flynn, but he cho- chose to make him a bit of a bumbling fool, although he's obviously not a fool. He's a very smart pirate. And then you have the joy of just watching these actors have a lot of fun. Um, I also, one of my favourite childhood films is Crimson Pirate with Burt Lancaster. I remember watching that in a midday matinee um, on telly as, as a young kid and just really enjoying the swordplay and the acrobat bat, um, elements of it because, of course, he came from a circus background, so they u- utilised that. And it's kind of embellished in, in Pirates of the Caribbean, but then you've got this amazing layer of technology and visual effects going on where these guys are, for want of a better word, the undead, and how it just seamlessly moves between horror, adventure, fun, romance, and then, of course, there's there's the treasure in all of this as well. So, yeah, that's that's my guilty pleasure. I, I every every sort of eighteen months, I'll go and get it in a popcorn bowl of popcorn and just sit there and happily play it. That's that's the best uh, guilty pleasure film you could do. Oh, oh look, it's just a sell. It, it's a great combination of what filmmaking is. I mean, we we all go out to entertain or experience something. Um, but for me, it's just pure entertainment. It's not supposed to be the smartest film in the world, but it's made with intelligence and mm. it's made with celebration and it, it's good fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, thank you very much for letting me interview. <laughs> You're more than welcome, Gordon. Thank <laughs> you. So that was my interview with Cindy. And if you've noticed, we've actually gotten into sort of a bit of a rhythm here, and that's thanks to Andre. Uh, Andre Elijah, if you haven't noticed our YouTube videos for postmortem, uh, we do weekly roundups on postmortem where we basically just, Andre and I sit down and we give you the top news from the week as well as the top post to AOTG.com. You might want to check that out. It's on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash AOTG.com. So uh, special thanks to Andre for that, all that hard work. We've been doing lots of work with uh, the various associations. We got our next issue of the Assembly coming out. And we're going to be in L.A. doing a pub night as well. So if you're in Toronto on the 21st, come join our pub night. If you're in L.A. on the 3rd of August, come join us at our pub night. And uh, last year we had over 100 people show up in L.A. So let's see if we can uh, destroy that number and just kill it. So go to AOTG.com. And on the right-hand side, you'll notice a little box that has the various pub dates in there, and you can check those out. So in the upcoming issue of the Assembly, there's some great articles from various artists uh, and writers from around the world. Uh, we're excited to have ACE on now, as well as the uh, the Monteurs from France. So definitely check that out. With that said, I've got to wrap up here. Uh, you're probably wondering where Lauren's going and also where our phone messages are. So we've been getting a lot of phone messages. Uh, a couple people have left some interesting things. We need to weed through it because there's so many that have come in. Some of my favorite are, uh, we do have one listener who's been giving us uh, his road story. So basically he's been calling in with basically just when he gets stuck on the 405 in L.A., he calls in and just leaves a long message. So uh, we might get some of those in um, and chop them up a bit because they are a bit long. But uh, yeah, we might might enjoy some of those. Lauren is crazy busy right now. She's working at a marketing firm. So she's been just working late nights. Anyone who's worked at a marketing firm knows what I'm talking about. Uh, so 
With all that said, I want to thank Andre for cutting this. I want to thank Cindy for joining me in this episode. Uh, I'd also like to thank the Australian screen editors for all their help and their wonderful work. You'll see more of it in the assembly coming up. And of course, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.